lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota, and SixFootMama.com. This is Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling. Still Growing is a gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow. Hi there, everyone, and welcome to Still Growing, and thank you for listening. I'm your host, Jennifer Ebling. In today's show, I'm sharing my conversation about herbal remedies with Jody McKee of Inspired Living Home Body Spirit. Do you grow herbs? They're some of the easiest plants to grow. I always say herbs are a great gateway into gardening. Herbs make good food great, but there's a lot more they can do. Long before modern medicine, herbs were used to alleviate some of the same ailments we experience today, and herbal teas offer a variety of benefits. Plants can be used to aid digestion and ease inflammation, and who couldn't benefit from better sleep? Today, Jody will help us learn simple ways to make already wonderful plants even better as you use them to flavor and improve your life. That's coming up after the Garden News Roundup. But first, I'd like to start out with a reminder about our Facebook group. It's free and easy to join, and all you have to do is go to Facebook and search for Still Growing Podcast Group, and then click to join, or go to my website at sixfootmama.com. That's the number six, F-T-M-A-M-A.com. It's also the home of the Still Growing Podcast. And right in the main menu is a link to the Facebook group. You'll see it right there. It says Facebook group. And if you're listening to this episode and like what you hear, you should definitely join the group. Not only are there great giveaways for listeners, but in addition to sharing news and conversations about gardening, I'm planning to organize some meetups at public gardens around the United States. So if you're not yet a member of the listener community on Facebook, I would love for you to join for free. Just head over to Facebook and join the Still Growing Podcast group. You know, this show is one of three shows that I'm batch producing on March 18th because I'm having rotator cuff surgery on the 20th of March. And in last week's show, I forgot to welcome new members that had joined the group. So I want to make sure that I welcome some of these guys. I'll do it in this episode, and then I'll do the rest of them in next week's episode. And then when I recover from surgery and start producing again, I'll be welcoming new members at that time as well. So the new members that I forgot to welcome last week, but I do want to welcome this week, are Leslie Clark, Kim Wagner, Maria Capuya, Cindy Dean Baldwin, Julie Brandt, Carrie Straka, Daryl Foskett, Lori Eisenstadt, Lori's a fellow podcaster, and she's got a great podcast all about breastfeeding. So if that's something that interests you or you know of a new mother that's breastfeeding, please share that show with them. And finally, Jessica Rinks. Welcome, you guys. All right, now it's time for the Garden News Roundup. These are just a handful of the curated posts that I've collected over the past week, and they've been shared in the free Facebook group as well. So if you hear something and want to read the full article, just head on over to the Facebook group. And again, all you have to do is search for the Still Growing Podcast group on Facebook. 
In the guest update section this week, John Sheeper's Kitchen Garden Seeds had shared something pretty tremendous on their Facebook site, and it's this deep, dark, red, sultry sunflower, and it's called Moulin Rouge. It's gorgeous, and if you like a deep burgundy red, this sunflower will steal your heart. So again, you can get it at John Sheeper's Kitchen Garden Seeds. Just look for Moulin Rouge Sunflower. And of course, Joanne Vandenberg Ohms was on the show from John Sheepers sharing wonderful spring bulb selections, and they should be just about ready to make their appearance. So I'm looking forward to taking pictures of my bulbs from Van England. The other post that made it in the guest update segment this week was from Pam Pennick. She was the author of the book, The Water Saving Garden. It was a super popular episode. It's episode number 555, and it was called How to Grow a Gorgeous Garden Using Less Water. And I ran across a TEDx talk that Pam had referenced in her group called Planting the Rain to Grow Abundance, and it's by Brad Lancaster. This was a fantastic share by Pam, and I thought it was one that you, my water-wise gardeners, would really enjoy. In sustainability this week, I shared a really fun post featuring Hong Kong's Skyline Farmers. This article was featured in The New Yorker, and it's about this company called Rooftop Republic that designs rooftop gardens in Hong Kong. In fact, over the past two years, the company has averaged one new farm a month, and by the end of this year, it expects to have set up about 50 farms and transformed 45,000 square feet of skyline into urban farmland. Very inspiring. In the continuing ed segment this week, I shared two articles. The first was written by Debbie Arrington in the Miami Herald. She wrote a compelling article about clay soil needing compost and not sand. The article quotes Sacramento soil expert Stephen Zion of livingresources.com, and he says it's a common myth, one that persists, that sand helps break down clay. And he says that sandy soils are quick draining, so adding sand to clay to improve drainage would seem to make sense. But the problem comes from particle size. He says clay is made of tiny, teeny grains, while sand is made of comparatively big blocks. If a sand particle was the size of a basketball, a clay particle would look like the head of a pin. So when sand and clay are combined, clay fills all the open spaces around the sand particles like concrete, and that clogs the soil's pores and prevents air pockets that allow plant roots to breathe and have good drainage. There's a lot of great information in this article, and I was very excited to share it with you guys. MyDomain.com shared a wonderful post here at the beginning of March talking about this extra hour of sunlight that we've gained this month and then some ideas about what to do with it. There's lots of great continuing ed in this article. In the how-to DIY segment, there were four articles that made it into this segment. The first is from dietoflife.com, and it's how to grow your own organic food using a pallet garden, and it shows you how to repurpose a pallet into a garden. It's a step-by-step, so a perfect how-to, and if you've been interested in doing a pallet garden, this would be a great resource for you. 
In the middle of March, Permaculture Magazine shared how and why you need to prune fruit trees. And expert Wade Muggleton offers his tips for fruit tree pruning. Then Dwell.com shared the things that all designers do to make their home a happier place. And I was pleased to see that houseplants definitely played a role. But if you read this article, I'd love for you to look at it through the lens of being a gardener, because a lot of these same principles, the things that make a home a happier place, can also translate into making a garden a happier place. So check that out. And then finally, in the DIY segment, Architectural Digest had a piece I just fell in love with. I think I've read it twice now. And it's all about how to grow a cut flower garden that's as impressive as Floret Farm. So last week, Aaron Benzakine of Floret Farm was in my dream guest segment. And here, Architectural Digest writes this amazing post about her. So she's still a dream guest that I'd love to have on the show. But in addition, read this article for how to grow an impressive cut flower garden. It's really a quality article. In the plant spotlight this week, I picked the plant motherwort. And I picked it because I knew that Jody McKee was going to be on the show this week. And motherwort is a plant that has a medicine that is remarkably accessible. And the crazyherbalist.com describes motherwort this way. Motherwort is like that friend you never have to guess where you stand with or how they're feeling. Her effects can be felt quickly and reliably. She is a plant that says, here you go, here's what you need to do the work, to show up to what ails you, what task you have ahead, be it pushing another human being through your pelvis, facing the fears that grip your heart, integrating the pain of loss, addressing systemic imbalances causing thyroid or cardiovascular dysfunction, riding the wild changes of menopause, or allowing yourself to calm down. Do the work, she says kindly. You've got this. That's motherwort, according to thecrazyherbalist.com. It's a great article that outlines motherwort's super herbal powers. In the news segment this week, there were two posts. The first was from Curbed.com, and there's a light fixture that doubles as a high-tech planter. They rotate and they provide moisture too. These looked super cool. I almost put them in the shopping segment, but I stuck them in the news for now. And then House Beautiful in the UK shared a post about shedscapism and why sheds are the new zen dens. I would love to have a garden shed. I know exactly what I would do with it. I'd have a little couch that's decked out with some bed pillows for afternoon naps, all of my gardening stuff, some gardening books, and maybe a little fridge if I was going to take it over the top. It's no wonder they're so popular because creating a personal sanctuary, what could be better than that? In the dream guest segment, I've got a couple of nurseries and the folks behind them. The first was shared in the Los Angeles Times, and it's called Two Dog Organic Nursery. It's one of the handful of mom-and-pop nurseries left in Los Angeles, and it's dedicated to the production of organic, non-GMO produce for planting. And as you can imagine, they welcome dogs. And the other nursery was featured in the Baltimore Sun. This is about a pair of gardeners that have tended a love for flowers at a place called the Little Greenhouse. 
I loved this story. I'd love to have them both on the show. I think it would be so tremendous. And then finally, the Washington Post shared an article about a young painter at the U.S. Botanic Garden. This article was about 24-year-old Mara Menahan. And this past month, she signed off as the U.S. Botanic Garden's first in-house botanical illustrator in modern times. She arrived as a Truman Scholar, and her year-and-a-half stint brought her into close contact with an extraordinary range of plants and blooms. I think it would be fascinating to interview her. In the science segment this week, there were three posts that caught my attention. The first was from countryliving.com. They had kind of a cute little article about why people can't stand the taste of cilantro. Uh, And I should say why some people, because the article says that. So not everybody, but some people really dislike cilantro. Now, my little John loves cilantro, and that's exactly why he's so crazy for the rice at Chipotle, because it's got a lot of cilantro in it, and John loves it. But this article describes the science behind that taste and why it can be off-putting to some people. Then at smartnews.com, there was a really interesting article with this title, Bumblebees May Smell Each Other's Footprints to Keep Track of Flowers. Apparently, in a new study, bumblebees were able to discriminate the foot odor left behind by other bees. Not only their nest mates, but strange bees and themselves. Very interesting article. And something about bees I hadn't heard before. And then last but not least, Google shared a new sun map that can tell you whether your roof needs a solar panel. So in a nutshell, Google has updated its interactive sunroof map, and it can help you estimate whether it makes sense to install a solar panel on your roof. I kid you not. Fascinating article and truly fascinating map. In the shopping segment this week, I wanted to share some things that I've purchased recently that I have found to be tremendously helpful. And the first is a piece of equipment. It's a desk mount that actually can raise my desk, the surface of my desk, to go from a seated desk to a standing desk. So it's motorized, and it's called the Sit-Stand Dual Motor Height Adjustable Desk Frame Lift. So I had a desktop that was already mounted to something else, but it was completely removable. So I could use the desktop and then attach this motorized leg system to the bottom. And I love it. In fact, right now, as I'm doing this podcast, I'm standing next to my desk and I'm loving it. So it's fantastic. So let's say you're a garden illustrator, you're a botanical illustrator, and you do a lot of seated work. Well, consider getting a standing desk. This could be just the ticket. I got mine from monoprice.com. That's where I love to buy my computer cables. And the great thing about it is when you just buy the leg system, it's a fraction of the cost of a standing desk. I don't know if you've priced standing desks lately, but it's hard to touch one for under $600. This automated leg system that I purchased was, I think it was for sure under $300. I want to say about $250. I don't have the price in front of me, but it was fantastic. And again, it's from monoprice.com. 
The other thing I wanted to share with you is this fantastic neutral paint color. Sometimes people are looking for a neutral paint color for their potting shed or different things outside in the garden. You don't want to do white. You're tired of maybe cream. This is a great neutral that I have found, and it was painted inside the grocery store that my kids work at. And I have to say, I always pay attention to corporate spaces, spaces that would have people in facilities that maybe have applied some science behind the colors that they're picking because, of course, they need to appeal to their customers. So when I walked into the grocery store one day with Emma, here the painters are feverishly painting, and I loved the color. It's not a gray. It's not a cream. It's not a beige. It's something kind of all together. And it turns out, I talked to the guy. He went in the back, and he got me the little ticket that says what it is. It's a Sherwin-Williams paint, and it's called Balanced Beige. So that's the color. I loved it. And I know if I'm looking for a neutral paint this year, that's going to be my go-to neutral paint. So that made the shopping segment this week. The other thing I wanted to tell you about is my iPhone case. I got a new iPhone because my son, Will, had broke his iPhone. So we do the trickle-down theory at our house. If anybody's going to spend money on a new phone, it'll be me. And then whoever broke their phone gets my old phone. That's how we do it. So uh, Will got my old phone. I got a new phone. And when he was getting the new phone for me, I said, make sure you get me a case. And he came home with a case that I swear is now my absolute favorite case of all time. So I wanted to share it with you. And it's called the Tech 21 Evo gem case, and it's for the Apple iPhone. And and they have it for a number of versions of Apple phones. So I'm not sure if they do for others, but they for sure do it for the Apple phones. So just go to Tech 21, so T-E-C-H, Two one, and it's the Evo E V O gem G E M like like rare gem kind of a thing. Anyway, it's great. I got the pink one. It looks like there's diamonds on the back. It's a very girly case, but I'm in love with it. And I tell you what, this thing's tough. I've dropped it in the garage. I've dropped it on the driveway. I've dropped it on my kitchen floor, and it's making my phone last. So I love it. So it's tough. I'm assuming it will hold up in the garden, and I wanted to pass it on because it's great to know about great phone cases. All right, and then last but not least, I had my shoulder surgery, and I'm anticipating that I'm still going to want to take pictures even though I will not be able to use my right hand. So before I had the surgery, I started to research taking pictures with my left hand, how to do that. And one of the little gizmos that I came across on Amazon is a remote switch that I can attach to my camera and then just press the button, the release button, with my hand, with my right hand in my sling, and it will take pictures that way. So I don't have to click with my right hand up on the camera. I can keep my arm safely in the sling and then just press the button with my thumb. And I love it. I've tried it out. I'm looking forward to using it. And I'm sure by the time this airs, I'll have had a chance to take pictures using my remote switch. So I got this as well from Amazon. And I want to say it was about 10 bucks. I was very surprised at the price. 
So sometimes for gardeners, we end up with some type of arthritis or we can't use our hands as well as we would like to. This remote switch could have multiple uses and solve many, many problems. So I'll have a link to it in today's show notes if you're interested, or you can find out about it in the Facebook group for the show. In the inspiration segment this week, I shared a really great post from CNN, and it features award-winning photos of farmland life in rural Africa. And some of these works will be on display in an exhibition called Grow Conserve at Somerset House in London. They're absolutely tremendous images. One of my personal favorites was this image of harvested sunflowers in a village in Zambia. It's very captivating. Another one shows this woman drying rice. And there are a number showing native plants. Plants you don't see in Minnesota or the United States. They're native to tropical regions of Africa and Asia. And these photos are fantastic. So lots of inspiration from these images this week. There were two recipes that I shared as well. The first is a broccoli apple salad. In fact, this past week, I'd heard from a friend that the most Googled food in Minnesota was a broccoli salad. So maybe that's why it popped up on my newsfeed. But this one I liked because of the incorporation of apples. So I like the idea of the broccoli and the apples together. And then this one adds pecans, cranberries, carrots, and it has a creamy dressing, which I like with broccoli. And then Mother Earth News had a great recipe for a wild chickweed salad and wild chickweed pesto recipes. That caught my eye as well. Well, that's it for the Garden News Roundup this week. These are just a handful of the curated posts that I've shared in the free Facebook group. So if you've heard something that you're interested in and you want to read the full article, just head on over to the Facebook group. You'll find it all there. Well, I am so excited to introduce today's guest. Jody McKee is a talented, smart, kind, and wise woman who has been cultivating her herbal practice for over 15 years. She teaches classes, she has a product line, and she's coming out with a new website, which should be up and running by the time this episode airs. Her new website is located at inspiredlivinghomebodyspirit.com. You can find her on Facebook. Just look up Inspired Living Home Body Spirit. And she's on Instagram, inspiredliving.homebodyspirit. I just loved my conversation with Jody. I could talk about herbs all day long. They're endlessly fascinating to me. And Jody was so kind. At one point in the interview, I asked her, what should I do for my shoulder? I'm having rotator cuff surgery. So I took a moment to be selfish and ask a completely personal question about how to use herbs to care for this shoulder that I'm having this surgery on. And she said, no problem. I'm going to mail you some herbal goodies. And I was totally thrilled. So she sent me this most adorable little package that had Solomon Seal Spray, which we talk about in the episode, but it's good for strains, sprains, a stiff neck or back. And then she sent me Calendula to use for any place that is sore. So I absolutely loved that she did that for me. She attached the most thoughtful little card with instructions, and then the package was to die for. I think I've got to hang on to it. It's just too pretty to toss out. Oh, and she included a little piece of chocolate. What woman doesn't want a little piece of chocolate to help them recover? So that was fantastic. 
Anyway, I could go on and on about Jody. I'm just going to let you listen to the interview. You're going to love it. Here she is. Well, hi there, Jody. I'm so excited to talk to you about herbs today on the Still Growing Podcast. Hi, I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for asking. <laughs> well, it's my pleasure. You know, I, as I mentioned in the pre-show chat, I found out about you by reading the newsletter from Tonkadale Nursery, and they shared that you were going to be at their Edibles Expo coming up in March. Uh, it'll actually, by the time this show airs, it'll already have happened, but I'm planning on going, and what caught my attention is that you were going to share simple ways to make already wonderful plants, all the herbs that gardeners love to plant, even better as you use them to improve your life. You're going to guide people through this. I'm so curious how you came to be an herbalist. What's your personal story around this? Oh, well, let's see. So I, well, I have three boys. So um, being a mother leads you in lots of different directions. So I have my oldest, yeah, (laughs) my oldest son is 20 and then I have 16 and 10. And so when my oldest son was little, actually like starting from two weeks on, he um, had really bad asthma. They didn't call it asthma right away. They called it reactive airway, which was the same, the same thing as asthma. So what happened was he was sick for about five years and I just, I was a really good <laughs> patient at the doctors and I did everything that they told me to do. But there was this sort of a point when he was five and he'd been sick and he was in, in kindergarten and missing a lot of school that I just thought I have to do something different and I have to try something different. And back then I actually didn't have access to the internet. And I remember going to the library and going to Barnes and Noble and just looking for books on what I could do to help my son not get a cold and not have asthma. And so I started with some actually really crazy things. I remember having him drink all this water. I read about a water cure, which didn't work, (laughs) but my kids, yeah, they end up being my guinea pigs. So I started about 15 or 16 years ago and we used plants for everything, for everyday occurrences all the time. And so instead of going to the store to get something for a stomachache, we use plants in the garden and I put things up for the winter to be able to use them when it's off season. And so anyway, that's sort of a long story about how I got started with, with the plants and sort of what they can do. They can improve your health. And were you able to help your son with his airway issue? Yes. So by the time, and it wasn't only plants to be, to be perfectly honest, I, I read about healthy houses um, I read about foods and additives and all that. So um, I did a bunch of research and I changed his diet. We actually moved to a different house that I thought had healthier air and we used plants. And And I had an herbalist, one of my first herbalist teachers, her name's Lisa Wolf. She lives in Minneapolis. She still teaches. She was helping me at that time, although I was I had began my herbal studies, but I didn't feel comfortable in treating him because he had been so sick. But she was helping me and what ended up happening is we were, he was taking a a low dose of herbs for about six months. And then he had this huge cold where he was coughing and wheezing and he was on all this. I mean, it was just awful. And then that cold cleared up and literally he never had asthma again. So it's a crazy story. I tell it all the time. My son loves to tell it. He's 20 and healthy and hasn't had an asthma attack in over 15 years. So we are happy and he doesn't have that issue at all anymore. 
Oh, that's fantastic. So. That's fantastic. Yeah. Now, give me the name of your herbalism, your first herbalism teacher again. What was the name? So her name is Lise Wolf. It's L-I-S-E. Wolf is W-O-L-F-F. If you Google, um, like, herbalist Lise Wolf, I think that's sort of what she goes by. And she's in Minneapolis, and she teaches a three-season of herbal wisdom, which is awesome, and which is where I started many years ago. I love that. Now, you began your journey with an herbalism class. Is that how most people start this path toward expertise in herbs for healing? I think that's the way um, many people start. But you'll see, like, when I meet other herbalists, there's a lot of things that sort of attract people to herbalism and a big thing is the healing and for me like I was already a gardener so my parents were both gardeners I grew up with my mom having beautiful flower gardens and my dad having the vegetable garden and so um, that is sort of was my path in like I already knew about the plant and then to just add this this idea that they could heal you and do all this stuff was like mind-blowing for me so I think people sort of come in from different perspectives. I know lots of times there's nurses, you know, people in the healthcare profession just wanting to learn what else they can do to help people. You know, I remember a couple of years ago, I had a conversation with a woman while I was driving. I had a long drive ahead of me, and I was looking for a, an herbalist to come on the show. And I can't even remember this woman's name now, but we ended up talking and like you, she had a daughter that was sick. She had a daughter who had this terrible rash situation happen. And the daughter was in the hospital and they couldn't get, get the hives or whatnot to settle down. And, and she was at her wit's end. And somehow she began reading about herbs and she ended up making this tonic using lavender and would go into the hospital, spray it on her daughter's arms and... Over time, over the next couple of days, the hives settled down, the reaction settled down, and the nurse that was in the room helping with the daughter said, oh my gosh, I, I'm a huge user and believer in herbs as well. And that set her on her path to becoming an herbalist. Is that a common story that you hear among you know people who practice what you're doing with herbs? Yes, because I, I think what... Um what happens, and I actually am just working on my website, and I'm writing a story like this. So once you, you once you see the the plants in action, and you experience this, or somebody close to you experiences this real healing, like you just become hooked, and then you want to try something else. So I'm sure with her it was the rash, and then it was like, well, what could we do next, and see what we can have a real change on or what we can cure or, you know, what can happen when we use these plants. And, and that's sort of what keeps me going. It's almost like, like a common plant we use is yarrow to put on, like if you were cut or something or um, a bruise. So if you put yarrow on a bruise and I've had it where my son will have, like he hit his head once and he has a huge egg on his head. And within an hour of putting the, the yarrow plant on his head, it goes down and it's gone. Well, any, all the people that were here that saw that are just crazed. Like they just then want to know how, what was that plant and how did I know what to put it? You know, how did I know to put that on there and how did it work and what else could they do? And what else should they know about these plants in my yard? So yes, I think that's exactly right is once you experience it and you see it and it heals in a real way, like it did with that, um, that woman's daughter, 
yeah, then you just can't, <laughs> you just, it just starts this, uh, for me, it started this life, you know, this long journey into plants and how they can heal and help. Mm. Well, Margaret Roach calls it woo-woo, you know, when you're getting into areas of the garden that kind of tap into kind of the mystical or the artistic, maybe less so than the science area, although there's plenty of science to support this. But people start to feel like it's starting to float away from them, and and they're skeptical of things like herbalism. They're just not as familiar with it. How do you overcome that, or how do you approach that? Well, and and I actually think, so science is catching up to stuff that... um, that people have known for a really long time, right? Actually, like herbalism is what has been what has sustained people throughout time and history. And it's only in the last couple hundred years where we've actually turned away from herbalism. But now with science catching up, I think it's it does a great service. So I have been using like elderberry and I actually have it in my garden. I plant the plants and you can also wildcraft that, but I have it, you know, elderberry in my garden and I've been using it for colds and flus for 15 years. It was one of the first herbs that I used with my son when he was little. So now it's funny, like I'll get people almost every winter, there'll be an article that comes out that says somebody somewhere has proved that elderberry works for colds and flus. There'll be some scientific study. So people will email that to me and I say, Yep, I I already know that, but thank you for that <laughs> validation. And so science really is um, sort of catching up. And there's one thing, too, that I'd like to point out. So a pharmaceutical company cannot or any, uh, you cannot patent an herb. And so like elderberry, so to, to fund a study to prove that elderberry um, cures or, or can help impede a, a cold virus or a flu virus, there's not a lot of institutions that want to fund that because what happens with their pharmaceutical drugs, I think 75% of them of them are derived out of plant medicines, but they want to patent them to make money and you can't patent just elderberry. It's just not patentable. And so there is a little bit of rub with sort of the money and who will fund the studies. And so when people sort of understand that, that that's why we don't see more studies about plants and what they can do, I think that is a little bit helpful. And, and, but there are some, and they're definitely coming out more and more. And I think every winter now, like elderberry being used for cold and flus is pretty common. Well, 15 years ago, people didn't really know that or didn't understand that at all. Hmm. Let's go back and talk about the yarrow plant that you mentioned in, in the instance where your son got the goose egg on his head. Are we talking about the common yarrow with the yellow bl- blossom? Is that, like, could I use that if one of my kids got a bruise, which happens all the time because they play basketball? Yeah, so yarrow, it, the the kind that is most medicinal is the, what you would find in the wild, which is the white flower. Um, and you can often find that still... Um, at nurseries. It'll be hit or miss, but every once in a while I'll run into that. And especially in the nurseries where it says like the native plants, like here in Minnesota, I'll often see um, the white yarrow. So that that's what I prefer. Um, the yellow yarrow and the pink yarrow, it would work. I, I'm sure it would work to prefer the, the white and that's what I grow. I do have some pink too, but I don't use that for that. But so it's just the white yarrow and what I do like for bruise or bleeding that goose egg on his head, like I just went out to the garden. It happened to be in bloom. If it wasn't in bloom, I would just use its leaves and I took it and just crushed it up and used some surgical tape and taped it to that goose egg on his forehead. And actually that night he went in and got his eighth grade pictures taken for school and you can't even see that bump on his head. Oh, isn't that crazy? (laughs) 
it's yeah, it works awesome. It's amazing. If you if anyone who tries it will be amazed at the results because it happens really fast and it just works really well. And it can also be used for any. It was called woundwort and carpenter weed because it was often brought into battle to to staunch bleeding, and it was carpenters use it because they would cut themselves. They were prone to cutting themselves, and that was a plant that they always wanted to have on hand to staunch the blood. Hmm. And so it is, I mean, it's a great remedy for that. You can use it for bloody noses um, and a lot of bruising. Just like if you fall and somebody hurts himself, it doesn't even have to be a goose egg, but to put some yarrow on there, it kills the pain too. So it helps right away. Interesting. Have you found that that is helpful, that if you can understand the common names that are associated with the plant, that it's often clues to what the medicinal use might be? Yeah, I think so. But it's a little tricky because what happens um, is it's called different things in different places. And so oftentimes, like it might be like, we don't use it that way here. Like there'll be something like that. Like, um, there's a plant called bone set and I use it for flu actually. And there's a lot of studies that say the indigenous people use that to set bones, but a lot of the, uh, modern herbalists do not. And so like that one is one where actually I'd be curious to then go back and think about using it to, with somebody that has a broken bone, you know? So I, I guess it depends on the name and, and the, the place where the plant comes from because what happens so like down south value they have different common names than we do here in the midwest and i've seen um you know on the east and west coast too that that the plants vary and what people call them vary and actually even how they use them vary a little bit Hmm. interesting you know that is an issue that uh shelly cram who wrote the gardener's bible ran into as well she was researching the plants of the bible because these plant names morph over time and then how they're used in different parts of the world also affected how those plants were you know kind of perceived so she was doing that research even into something you know super simple that you would think everyone could agree on Uh, she found there was a ton of controversy around the names of plants and then the different uh, uses and the regionalism that was associated with those plants so it is interesting that way isn't it yes yep I totally agree Hmm. Let's talk a little bit about bone set. I know when uh, I was doing research for this episode, I ran across an article that you were featured in in Lake Minnetonka Magazine. And they mentioned this. They said that you liked it and that it's a common native plant here in Minnesota. I call my garden, it's like it's my apothecary. So I have um, about an acre, and most of it's woodland. A lot of it was here, but I also add in a lot of native plants. So I do, bone set is a wildflower, but I did plant it in my garden, and it grows quite well, and it, it's naturalized. Um, and I, I end up tincturing it every year, which a tincture <laughs> is where I take the plant, and I put it in alcohol to preserve it, to pull out the medicine, and then I strain it off about six weeks later, and then I use that you know, in the winter months. And bone set in particular, I use to in low doses to fight off the flu when somebody is having symptoms um, at the very beginning. Like when they, when you just start to feel like you might be getting sick, you feel a little bit achy, you feel tired, or you have that scratch at the back of your throat. That's when herbal medicine is most effective. It's like right before it has gotten, when it's full blown, it's hard to treat. 
Yes. Okay, so let's talk about a tincture because I'm glad you brought it up. It was going to be one of my questions. So let's walk through it. Let's pretend I'm over at your house and we're going to make a bone set tincture. What are we using? Is it pure alcohol? Is it rubbing alcohol? What kind of alcohol are we using? And then how do we get the leaves in there? That kind of thing. Yeah. Well, could I back up even a little bit further and just talk about, so there's sort of three preparations that we might use with herbs. And one is a tea, which most people are familiar with. So a tea, we put um, the plant material in the water. Um, The water extracts the medicine. Then we take this plant material and we drink the tea. So, so that's one way, and that that works if you have the dried material, or and it works really nice with fresh material. So, and then another way to sort of preserve the medicine is to use an oil. So, just like the tea, I take oil and then I put my plant material into the oil, and I let that sit, sit you know, longer than with tea. I let it sit for four to six weeks, and then I again strain off the plant material and use the oil. And so, and then the third way is a tincture. And so a tincture is, again, just the same thing. It's taking the plant material, putting in the alcohol, and straining it off about six weeks later. So if you were here, and we were going to make a tincture, um, and I, I'd even like to just switch it to chamomile, because I feel like chamomile is some, a tincture that everybody could make. So, because okay. um, chamomile is just an easy, happy little garden flower. So if we were going to make a chamomile tincture, you would have your chamomile growing, and when it's in bloom, usually I tincture the plant material when it looks the best. So if I'm doing a leaf, I usually tincture it before the the plant blooms because once the plant blooms, right, the every kind of all the energy of the plant goes into the flower, and the flower is what's most beautiful. But you'll notice right before the plant blooms, the leaves look awesome. So, um, but with chamomile, I'd be looking to tincture the flower. Um, and I have a big plot of chamomile, but what happens is I still can't get enough leaves to make a big tincture. So usually I just do a small sort of a four ounce jar and I pick my chamomile flowers and I put them in there. And then I put organic vodka in just to cover up sort of up to the top. So it covers up all the plant material. And then I would let that, usually what I do with chamomile is I add to it. It's one of the only ones I keep adding until I have a full four-ounce jar if I don't have all the, enough flowers to fill the jar on the day that I'm making the tincture. But anyway, so I I cover the plant material with alcohol, and then I just put it in a dark spot for about six weeks. And then I, I pull it out, and I strain out the plant material, and then I what's left is an, it's it's organic vodka, but you'll when you taste it, it tastes like chamomile. It tastes like the flower buds, and we use that tincture that is one of the most common tinctures that we use at our house for stomach aches it helps people sleep it's anti-inflammatory you can put it on a bug bite and it's just portable it's a lot easier than having a fresh plant or having to make tea now what kind of alcohol are you using when you start that tincture so i use that organic prairie vodka i think it's i don't know if it's from minnesota or south dakota but it's just it's most of the liquor stores around here in the midwest have that Okay. Do you use those colored bottles or glasses when you're making these preparations, or do you prefer to use clear glass? I use clear glass. I usually use just the ball canning jars, like, you know, depending on what, how much plant material I have, I use from the four ounce up into, you know, a bigger 16 ounce or something like that. So I just, and I use the clear, but when I strain them off, I do use the Boston round kind of the dark amber bottles to keep my medicine um, away from the light. Okay. And I keep it sort of in a dark, 
covered. But when I'm, um, when I'm first making the tincture, I just use the clear jars. I like to see what's happening and to be able to look at the alcohol and just see where the level's at and just to sort of see the what's happening inside the jar. Hmm. Now, as I was hearing you put this together and you're talking about trying to get all these chamomile blossoms to make the tincture, it was reminding me of the first time I made pesto where I'm using basil leaves <laughs> because in you know, oftentimes these recipes call for, you know, two, three, four cups of basil leaves. And initially you think, well, that's not such a big deal until you start going out to pick all of this stuff and you realize, oh my goodness, I need to grow more basil. Is that kind of what happens as you start to work with these herbs? You realize, oh man, I need to do, I need to plant much more if I'm going to be harvesting to make these different healing ointments or salves or tinctures. Yeah, that, I mean, it happens with a lot of plants. So like calendula is another, um, we call it pot marigold. It's another um, herb that I use a lot. And I, I swear, no matter how much I plant every year, I cannot plant enough. I run out every winter and I think, oh, why didn't I plant more of that? Um, but, and, but then there's plants like lemon balm, which are, you know, that plant, you just put one in and every year it comes back. It's beautiful. It's more abundant. Um, so that one, there's enough for me to tincture. There's enough for me to make teas all season long. It, you know, it, I, I pinch it back, it grows back up. And so it depends on the plant, but, um, I definitely do find there's there's plants that I wish I had more space for and, you know, just cannot seem to grow enough of. Now, one other thing I wanted to ask you about uh, back when you were talking about the three different methods of utilizing these herbs and, and transforming them into a medicine is you were talking about using them in an oil or making them into an oil. What's the base oil that you start with? I often use organic olive oil. And, and the reason is, is because it's inexpensive because I end up making a lot. If I went to something like jojoba oil or almond oil, that's just much more expensive. And olive oil is just, I can get it anywhere. Like sometimes I'll be up north at somebody's cabin and I'll see a plant. I'll be like, oh, I have to, you know, I want to make an oil out of that. And it's just easy to get. And yes, just, just budget wise, it makes sense to do that since I go through a lot of it. Hmm. So when you're creating these oils, is it as simple as here's a bottle of oil, I'm going to pour it into a container, I'm going to add some leaves, and then I'm going to walk away for four to six weeks? Yeah, so I'll talk about making a, so another plant I make an oil with is plantain, and that's the weed that everyone is trying to get rid of in their gar- in their yards and in their gardens. And so I actually let my plantain grow. I love <laughs> plantain, there's a lot of uses for it. And so making an oil is one of them. And plantain you can get enough of, right? Usually if you have it in your yard, and my yard is not sprayed with anything other than compost tea. So it's safe for me to use that to make medicine. So what happens with plantain is I'll go around after it's been dry for at least a couple days. And you know, when your yard kind of feels dry, that's when I pick the plantain leaves or when my garden feels dry. So I'll go around and I'll, I'll pick the leaves. Usually I have a sun or two that will help me and I'll gather a whole bunch up. And then I actually will set them out on a screen just to dry uh, just only, and I only do this when I make an oil, um, just to dry maybe overnight because when oil and water mix, that is when mold can happen. And so I just want to always just be really, um, just aware that that can happen and make sure that my plant material isn't totally dry because then I feel like it loses some of its life force, but dry enough that it won't cause any mold. So mm-hmm. like with planting, so I'll, I'll leave the leaves out overnight and then in the morning I'll get up and I'll 
sort of tear them up a little bit and put them into one of my canning jars. And then I'll just dump the olive oil into the jar. And I might use like a skewer or something to push it down just to get out all the air bubbles. And then I just, you know, top that off with olive oil and I'll close it up. Yep. And I'll put it away for four to six weeks. Usually I might take it out once. Just some plant material absorbs a lot of the oil and then the oil level will go down. And I, you really want the oil to go to the very top. So there's no, um, mold or any anything i find when i've ever when i have gotten mold into one of my oils it'll be because there's plant material and it's sort of way above where the oil level is okay so you need to submerge it yep so you're canning like that um the top of the canning that lid should just sit right on the oil and usually when i push it in maybe a little will come out around the edge and i screw my tight on or my top on really tight and that's and then just put it in a sort of a cool dark place for four to six weeks. So when you are using plantain as long as we're on the topic is it do you most commonly use it in an, in the form of an oil? Um, I, I use it often. I, I really love it fresh and because I mean, it's available, right? Everyone can have plantain. Everyone probably has plantain in their yard, whether they like it or not. So I prefer it fresh, but when I don't have it fresh, I definitely like to have it um, in an oil form. So in plantain, what we use it for, and this is just, this will be, this could be what one what your listeners could try. So plantain is really good at um, sort of drawing things. We call it a drawing agent. And so it's really good for bug bites, um, bee stings, any sort of hot rashes. Um, we use it for any slivers. Um, and so what will happen is if somebody gets stung by a bee in my yard, which, you know, I have all these boys and they like popsicles and stuff like that. So that <laughs> happens quite a bit. Um, we will just literally, I'll take a plantain leaf and I'll either give it to the person who got stung and ask him to chew it up. And this is a real thing. And, and then I'll, you know, take it and, and help them sort of either use a Band-Aid or you just use surgical tape that I have a little gauze that I put over the top and we'll put that on where they were stung. And within a half hour, usually the swelling's gone, the redness is gone. You might be able to see it a little bit, but, um, and they're always amazed. It's such a great, um, it's, it's one of the like our herbal tricks that we have. And, and it's actually, we call it an herbal Band-Aid. We call it plantain. Hmm. And so it, it, it works really um it's great. It's like a party trick. <laughs> it's a party trick. I love this. So, it's a party trick. Yep. So, so my kids out there, they get stung by a bee. I'm going to rip off some plantain leaves. I'm not going to pull that weed anymore. I'm going to let that go. <laughs> and then, um, and I think I'm just going to create a garden marker that says bee sting relief. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And then, um, so they, I want to make sure I'm getting this right. So they get stung by a bee. We rip off some plantain leaves. I have them chew up the leaves and then spit it out and we put it on the wound. Is that right? Yes. Yep. It's called a spit poultice. That's the official name. Oh my (laughs) gosh. This is so fantastic. And there'll be adults that won't do it, right? So when there's an adult that won't do it, I'll take the leaf. I crush it up in my hands. I won't put it in my mouth. But part of the, the, like the old herbalist will say, what's happening when you chew it is that your saliva is beginning to break down the plant. Um, so when you put it on your wound, it's broken down and the medicine is more easily available. So that's sort of the reasoning behind it. But again, adults won't do it. And so I just crush it up with my hands and I'll just tape it onto their skin and they'll have like the same thing that will happen. I mean, it gets better within an hour. You won't, 
oftentimes you won't even be able to see where the sting was or they'll be like looking for it or something. So yeah, it does. It works great. (laughs) So as you're talking about this, I'm like, why does this appeal to me so much? And I think I can only think that it's because I was raised in southwestern Minnesota. And when I grew up, I had to read all of the Little House on the Prairie books, all the Laura Ingalls Wilder books. And I immediately started thinking of there's that one story in the book where a, a little guy she knows, a little boy she knew, had encountered a beehive and he got stung or hornets or something. But it sure would have been nice if they could have made a poultice (laughs) with um, plantain instead of all the suffering he probably endured back then if they didn't know that they could have used that. Yeah, yeah. And I'm I I used to love those books too. And I'm surprised if they don't have more of that, if they didn't use more of that that herbal medicine. But there became a time when it wasn't you know, people sort of thought it was boo-boo or unsophisticated. It it sort of dropped out of style where I think now with this whole movement of just being uh, more sustainable and taking care of, you you know, just more natural, I think now it's just coming back. And so it's just having, you know, finding those teachers and finding those books, people that can help us remember what the traditions were so we can pull them up into our modern lives and use them. And it is fun. It's fun to discover them and Yeah. Yeah, it is. You know, one of the things that I keyed in on that you had mentioned was how important it is to be in tune with your body, to attune to what's going on, because these are maximally beneficial if you can address that, uh, you know, difference or that, you know, if you're if you're starting to head toward an illness or you're starting to notice that something's changing, if you can address it right away, the herbs and that type of medicine will be more effective. It's not going to work if you wait too long. So it's important to be attuned to your body and what's going on. Yes. And I that is one of the literally like that is one of the big things that I hope to teach people is that our bodies actually carry a lot of information and they know. And if we can sort of quiet down our brains and check in with our bodies, um, that we can get a lot of information and sort of just bypass a lot of the stuff that maybe we we go through I I, I think we don't listen to our bodies and it leads us down the wrong path path often. And I, I'll say to my kids, like, this is the number one thing I'll say to them. What does your body say? Listen to your body. How do you know, how do you feel? What do you think? You know, what does your body think you should do here? Because they, you know, we have all these ideas about even when you're starting to get a cold about keeping your schedule or doing something maybe that you don't have energy or you don't feel right for. But if you listen to your body, you might instead stay home and, you know, have some elderberry syrup and take a hot salt bath and take care of yourself you know, take some bone setter, whether that is good, a good night's sleep and wake up in the morning and not be sick. Whereas, you know, if you ignore what your body's telling you, you might, you know, go to that football game and stay out late and, you know, go to that party and then wake up sick in the morning and, you know, go through the whole week with that, you know, it's sort Mm. of, so I try to teach them and that in every one of my classes often we'll try teas and we try tinctures and what we do is we check in with our bodies. We just have a moment where we check in beforehand and then we'll take the remedy or we'll drink that glass of tea and we'll just say, you know, what do you notice? What happens in your body when you drink this lemon balm tea? Or, you know, what happens? How do you feel when you, blue vervain is another nervine that has a lot of people can really feel the difference in that. It's a Minnesota wildflower. And we'll say, you know, how does this feel? And people get big reactions and they're shocked that they can actually feel it. And that's really, it's fun for me and exciting. That's 
one of the things that I love the most, actually. Wow. What's that plant called? So blue vervain. So blue vervain is another, it's, it's a wildflower. Again, I just planted it in my garden and it seems to just sort of naturalize here. It, it's just, it's super easy to grow. And I think it's just, um, yeah, it's a beautiful wildflower. And I have ordered, you know, funny enough, there's not a lot of places in Minnesota where I can get blue vervain. So it is a, a native here, but I have to order it from California and have it shipped here so I can plant it in my garden. But it works, and the plant really likes it here. It's happy, and mm-hmm. and that's another one that I use um, often. It's it's a nervine. So a nervine is a plant that um, just helps nourish and restore the the nervous system. And there's a lot of people that really respond well to those types of plants. Oh, interesting. You know, um, have you read that, or have you heard of that new book by uh, Thomas Friedman? It's called Thank You for Being Late, and it talks about the fact that we're growing up or we're living in this age of acceleration. We've got all these accelerations from the accelerations in the marketplace to Mother Nature. You know, we've got climate change and overpopulation, and then the acceleration of the market because information is doubling so quickly. We've got all of these, all this information and access to it, and he talks about how in order to combat that, we need to connect with each other, one human being to another, and we need to anchor ourselves in the world. And that's where things like attuning to your body, slowing down and drinking some tea and seeing how that makes you feel, all the things that you're talking about, that's really the antidote to living in the age of acceleration. It's these ancient pieces of wisdom that we need to reclaim in order to survive. Yes, exactly. I could not agree more with that. And I wrote down the name of that book so I can, so I can look it up. I have not um, heard of that, but I find, and probably, you know, anybody who's a gardener finds a lot of peace in the, in the garden and being outside um, with nature. And I think that helps. And then even just introducing people to that and, you know, even with teaching them what the plants can do, I think, that is part of that slowing down and that reconnecting with people and the planet. And yeah, that feels so good and that people are really craving right now. Let me take a moment here and be a little selfish with you on the phone as long as I've got an expert here. (laughs) By the time this show airs, I'll be two weeks post-op from having my rotator cuff surgery because I have a I have a shoulder injury it's a long-term chronic injury I fell on the ice when I was in college and at the time they said I dislocated my shoulder and now as I've gotten older they uh, they said that I have this tear so they've got to do a repair and I'm not looking forward to it because of course it means that I'm out of commission and it's a long recovery so I was uh, watching a bunch of YouTube videos because there's all these people now that go through surgeries and then they document their experience. And this one woman was saying, oh, I I have some Arnica oil and I've been putting that on my neck and my shoulder, you know, just the area that wasn't bandaged, trying to, you know, alleviate some of the pain and, and promote healing. Is Arnica what you'd recommend or what would you do if you were in this situation? You knew you knew you were heading in for surgery and there was this little window of time where I can go out and either get some oils or put something together using herbs. Yeah, so Arnica is a great plant and that's sort of maybe the number one sort of bruise um, 
remedy. And the thing about Arnica is it doesn't grow here. And so I, my focus is on plants or what I end up using just because it's here are plants that grow here. And so in Minnesota, I would say like our bruise remedy or the plant that we use is yarrow for that same thing. Okay. And so yarrow is really good for bruising and to help repair some of that tissue that might be damaged. But my thought pulls me away from that. Like I might use something like um, Solomon seal is a plant. I mean, maybe I'm not sure if people call it a weed or a plant. Like, I don't even know if you can purchase that, but Solomon seal is a plant that grows here. I've actually had it in every yard I've ever been in, but it's just shown up on its own. I don't plant it, but Solomon seal is a plant that we use. um, And I always learn for anything that is too tight or too loose. And so it's a a plant that helps to balance out. And so in your case, with your surgery coming up, you know, maybe I would use it beforehand and I I have it in a spray. So I made a tincture out of it and I put it in a spray bottle um, and I would just spray that right on the skin. And so the idea is sort of to maybe tone the tissues around where the surgery is going to be. And then afterward, you could use the same thing to, again, tone, nourish, and rebalance those. And another one, so whenever there is a, an incision, I like calendula. So I make an oil out of that. And calendula, oh, I'm not, let's see. I, I usually use calendula for surgical wounds. And I'm not sure why that is my preference. Calendula is, it's a wound healer. It also heals it heals skin, it's anti-inflammatory, but I always like it. I always think when you have a surgical wound, like they kind of get puffy on the edges and they get swollen and they hurt, but they have a clean, you know, margin to them. And so I always like calendula. That has just been my, the one that I would always recommend. And I actually would be really happy to send you both and you could try them out and see what happens and then report back that, you know, what you noticed and, and what, um, and what happens with your healing. But those are the two that I would um, I would probably recommend for that. And I would just use them externally. Okay. I'm going to do that, and then I'm going to report back on the show. I'll tell everybody how it worked for me. I love those suggestions. And as a lover of Solomon seal, which I always think about as a little bit of a woodland-type plant, I just can't tell you, I mean, how much I love Solomon seal. So my oh, ear, my good. ears were delighted when I heard you say that because I'm like, oh, um, you know, we have, uh, or at least my friends and I that are just so passionate about it, it, it is sometimes hard to find in nurseries, but you can often find it in private plant sales or at garden club sales. So one of the places when I wanted to find it, especially the bigger variety, um, I would find it at, for instance, the Ramsey County plant sale that they have every spring. I would go and find it there. Um, And oftentimes, if you're buying it from someone who's already had it in their garden and they're giving you basically a transplant, I always find it does just a little bit better because it's already acclimated, you know, to Minnesota. And so it, it just seems to perform better for me than maybe, you know, buying these things that are right out of a nursery, especially if they're native. It's just so easy to get from a private plant sale. So, um, But I'm really excited to try that. So we've talked about calendula, but is the Solomon seal a tincture? Is it an oil? How do you prepare that? So I make a tincture with the Solomon seal roots. Oh. So roots. I say it like a Minnesota. <laughs> yeah, you do. <laughs> I get corrected on that. Roots. So <laughs> I make a tincture and I, I'll pull that up in the fall, probably, mm, I would say the beginning of November. So when you when you are working with with the root, you would like to do it 
when the energy is sort of dying back into the plant. You can also, you could also do it in the spring, but like most people have their Solomon seal cut. And, and of course there's the full Solomon seal and the Solomon seal and they actually work similar, but I always make sure, you always make sure before you use any plants medicinally that you are a hundred percent sure of their accuracy. So the way to do that, like, especially with a root is to do it in the fall when you still have sort of the plant skeleton or the leaves still on the ground so you can identify it properly. But yeah, so I would just pull that up in November and I, I take the root and I, I, wash it really good, um, get off all the dirt, I chop it up, and I do the same thing where I put it in a jar, and then I add my organic vodka to it, and I let it sit for about six weeks, four to six weeks, and then I strain that off, and then I put the Solomon seal in a little spray bottle. Like, that's one of the main things in my medicine cabinet that we use a lot for any, like, if you were to sprain an ankle, again, it's anything that's too tight or too loose is what we use it for. So, like, um, sprained ankle, even if there's a broken bone, and when the cast comes off, a lot of times the tissue around it just isn't quite right. And so we'll use it that way, maybe after a chiropractic adjustment. You know, a lot of times people lose their adjustment right away. So just a couple squirts of Solomon Seal um, might help you keep that a little bit longer because it helps tone the tissues. Well, let me ask you this. When it comes to Solomon Seal, are you, if you're digging up the plant, if you're needing the root system, are you able to save some of the plant? Do you need to use all of the root system or are you sacrificing some of it? Yeah, I just do. I don't use that much. So actually, when you make a, um, that's a good question. When you make a tincture with a root, you need much less. So usually I put the root in and then I might fill it up. I don't fill it as full as I do with other plant materials. So I, and I never take the whole plant. And when I'm taking the root, I'll look at the plant and decide, like for my Solomon seal, I've lived in this house for five years and I've pulled it up the first time this year and I actually didn't plant it there it just has come there's just a patch of it that had came here on its own somehow and I let it grow but I needed to make sure it was big enough so I could just take a little portion of it and not hurt the rest of the population and so that's always really important to me too is just to be sure that I, I that I'm not taking like the biggest and the you know the most beautiful or taking something out of the middle usually I just try to come in sort of on the side and take a little piece of it and leave everything else intact. And then it just keeps growing, right, and giving. And probably I'll be able to, to harvest some every year from now on because the, the plant has gotten so big and healthy and or the group of plants. Mm, I like it. I like it. Now, one of the other plants that I, I know that you have talked about in this other article that I had read about, and I don't know that I'm saying it correctly, is elecampane. Is that how you say it? Yes. Yep. All campaign. <laughs> and when I was, I had never heard of that. So I looked it up and they said it's also called horse heel or elf dock. I have no idea how we're going to take those common names and translate <laughs> them into what we're going to do with them medicinally. But you've got to talk to me a little bit about this particular herb. And then my only other comment that goes along with this is how many plants in the sunflower family have all of these medicinal uses because this is also in the sunflower family. And it just struck me as I was going through so many of these is that it's so common that they're in that family. Yes, yes. Um, 
Well, the Ella Campaign plant, I again, that is one of the ones I've had to order, or you can plant a seed, but I've ordered it from a nursery in California, and it grows quite well here. And it will, it's a perennial; it come back every year, and it, you use the root. So it's taken me again, you know, five years to establish my plants big enough so I can even feel comfortable going in and pulling some of the root out, harvesting that, and using it. But Ella Campaign is great for those chest colds that are, you know, when you cough and it makes that that terrible sound that sounds like, you know, you're losing a lung or you're coughing up all this stuff. Yeah. So, so that, that really, um, the mucousy, noisy, sort of rattly chest cough is what we use elecampane for. So if you haven't tasted it, oh, it has this distinct taste to it that you will not forget. Um, it's very strong and, um, anyone who hasn't tasted it before will usually like cringe a little bit when they take it, but it's really effective. What happens is it at first makes you cough more actually that you cough a bunch of stuff up and then it sort of eases the cough after that. So it's a really interesting herb that you'll watch it. You sort of watch it, how it progresses as it works inside your body. But so elecampane, I make a tincture out of it and I've also purchased the dried root and made an infused honey because that seems to be a nice way to sort of take it and not have, um, you can let the honey sit in your mouth for a long time and kind of hold it in there and then it melts and it goes down your throat and just the honey is healing itself. And then when you add the alicampine, it feels really good when you're sick with that kind of a chest cold. Oh, I love that idea. And then it's not so intense, right? Because I'm ima- as yes. you were describing it earlier, I'm imagining cough medicine and I'm like, well, there you oh. go. Modern, you know, med- medicinal yes. cough medicine versus herbal cough medicine. They both have that same, you know, kind of dark quality to them. Is that kind of what you're alluding to? Yes. Yep. Because it's the oil in there. And I, oh, I can't think of what the name of the oil is right off hand, but there's an oil in there and it is what makes it so strong and it is what the medicine is, but it also has that really strong flavor and taste. It's the, you know, and oftentimes we know the plants with that are really aromatic. We, we use them in cooking a lot too, but that, that's where the medicine is and that aroma and that taste. So when you're tasting the elecampane and you have that strong flavor, you just have to appreciate it because that's the medicine. <laughs> and when, when you were mentioning it in this one article that you were quoted in, um, I think you said that um, one of the active ingredients was insulin. Inulin, yes, Inulin. yes, yes. I couldn't remember. I just can't pronounce it right offhand. And yes, that is the oil that is the active ingredient. So you ordered yours from a catalog then, or how do you get yours? You know, um, I prefer organic herbs when I can source them. And um, we had a Shady Acres herb farm, if you've heard of that in Chaska, and now they actually are not going to be open this year. Yes. Mm -hmm. So that's unfortunate. So maybe um, somebody else will be inspired to open a (laughs) an organic um, herbal nursery in town um, with that leaving the market. But um, otherwise I have just, you know, there's some resources online. There's a, a company called Crimson Sage Nursery that's in California. And I, I've talked to them on the phone. I like their plants. They come and they're in pretty good shape. And I've ordered some um, plants from them. And the Ella campaign I got from there. But again, and it is a perennial here. It will, it comes back every year. It likes it. So it's not, um, it's not too exotic. Okay. But. And again, you're using the roots of the Ella campaign. Yeah. 
And yep. since it's in the uh, uh, sunflower family, do the roots kind of resemble dandelion roots? Oh, I are you dandelion root? They are different. Okay, and I might have a picture that I can send you about what they look like. There is actually a book that is really awesome, um, and I'll send you that too. It's a book that is all about roots, and it has different sketches, and it has um, points out different characteristics, and it's really fun to you know we can all see how the plants are different above ground, but when you get a book and when you can compare. Um, the roots of different plants and how fascinating they are. Um, I think it's really cool. Like it's just something that gardeners maybe um, don't pay that much attention to. And one plant that comes to mind when I talk about the like a unique root is the um, the bloodroot plant, which is going to be coming up here probably in a couple weeks. Um, and that root, when you cut it, it has this red sap that comes out of it that looks like blood. And so it's just really fascinating. But there's a whole um, there's a whole variety of different roots, and when you pull them out of the ground, I just feel like, oh, they're just part of the beauty of the plant. Um, but elecampane looks a little bit different, but I can't really, it's not, there's nothing that really sticks out that's really, like, I don't even know how to explain it. It's just a root. Okay. <laughs> it's a root. Okay. okay. <laughs> yeah. So it doesn't have, like, that long tap root that a dandelion no. would have. Okay. No. Okay. I mean, the ones, like I can think of burdock has that long tap root, and that's a plant that I use too, and those are almost impossible to get out. And yes. dandelion root is actually a plant that I use too. So dandelion, I've read, there's different accounts, but I have read that the that the settlers brought dandelion seeds with them, that it wasn't native to the United States. And I've also read the opposite of that. So I'm not exactly sure which account is true, but what is true is, um, the early Americans used dandelion as a tonic every spring. And so, um, you know, we're going to be moving into that time of year where dandelion is everywhere. And if you have a garden that doesn't have or yard is free of herbicides and pesticides, like I definitely recommend using the dandelion leaves and your salads. Um, you can use the root to make a tea. Um, we, they call them, um, they're, they're a spring tonic is what everybody um, sort of calls them and it's just about sort of flushing the the liver out it's about sort of all the heavy processed foods you might eat in the winter um, just kind of um, flushing that out and and typically dandelion was one of the first greens that popped up and so that's why it was really popular hmm. um, and and it, it's a, and it's a little bit better but if you add it into a salad with some other spring greens um, I don't think it's too bad. I'm sort of used to eating them, but um, I would recommend everybody try it. I think they're good. Interesting. Now, you mentioned burdock, and whenever my mom sees burdock growing in my garden, which occasionally happens, and and I always (laughs) take it out, and it's always immense, right? It's this huge, huge plant. My mom will usually tell me, because she grew up on a farm, and my dad knows this too, that pigs go crazy for burdock if they can get a hold of it. They just, they, it's like catnip for pigs. Um, what, what is, what do you do with burdock? I'm so curious. So burdock, um, it's a food and I had never heard that about pigs. That is, that's good to know, but we can, you can eat the root. You can actually buy it at the co-ops. They, uh, they sell burdock root and, um, you can chop it up 
And what, what I typically use it for is it's a little bit more involved, but basically it works on the liver, rebuilding the liver, tonifying the liver, um, just giving liver support. And so um, that's what I use the tincture for. But just to even pull the burdock, if you have it in your garden, pull up the root, you know, wash it off, chop it up and put it in your stir fry. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised and it's super healthy for you. And anything that sort of grows in the wild, um, I've looked at some research that says that that has more nutrients than sort of the commercially produced stuff. And so it's nice to add some wild foods into your, oh, <laughs> into your diet, even if it's, yeah, even if it's just the wild food, you know, from your garden that wasn't supposed to be there. So Wow. So you and I both have some things we're going to be Googling after this interview. You're going to go home and uh, Google burdock and pigs, and I'll be Googling everything yeah. else that you're talking about. I love it. I love it. Um, how about ginger? Ginger is always brought up when it comes to herbal medicine, and it's, you know, ancient, obviously, with Chinese medicine is a huge staple. How do you use ginger when it comes to herbalism that you're using here in Minnesota? So I typically, I, I don't grow it because it, we don't have a long enough growing season. When it comes available at the farmer's markets, I usually buy the young ginger that they have, that they sell like in Minneapolis just to try to use it and experiment with that. So typically I just buy my ginger from the, the grocery store and I get organic whenever I can. And so we'll use it to um, settle stomach aches. We'll use it if somebody is coming down with a cold or a flu at, in my house. Usually I make a super strong stir fry with a ton of garlic and ginger and shiitake mushrooms and maybe, you know, maybe I'll throw some other herbs in there. But the idea is just to help um, pump up the immune system and help them fight off whatever they're fighting. Or even if somebody is sick in my house and then I don't want everybody else to get sick, we sort of have a protocol of what we do. But I'll just, you know, <laughs> my food that I use or that I make, you know, will be chock full of herbs that will help. Um, prevent everybody else in the family from getting sick. So, so we use ginger that way. And in the winter, it's really warming. So if you're one of those people that tend to just get cold, like I would just get cold in November and be cold until March. And so if you're like that, you can just get up in the morning, fix yourself. The first thing you, um, you have in the morning, a glass of ginger tea, you'll notice it just warms up your extremities. It gets it sort of gets everything flowing and it just warms you up and you feel sort of really awake and alive after you do that. And so that was my habit for a lot of years. I haven't been as cold anymore as I'm aging a little bit, but um, that's what I use for a long time is ginger. Um, and also it's really good for motion sickness and stomach aches. So if somebody is feeling sick or nauseous, it can, it's safe to be used for morning sickness Um yeah, it's just an all-around, we always have a couple chunks of ginger in the refrigerator. Now, you mentioned that you're cold. Just wait a few more years. You might start having hot flashes. <laughs> yes. It's starting, yes. <laughs> I always have a water bottle by me when I'm interviewing someone, and I get one of those sport bottles that sprays so that if I get too hot while I'm talking to someone, I can just turn down the volume <laughs> on my mic, and then I spray myself with water. And so I'm sitting here going, okay, I bet Jody would have some recommendations for hot flashes. Let's hear it. What's yeah. Advice. Yeah. So there's two of them. And because I haven't experienced this myself, I've given it to <laughs> friends, but I, I'm just starting that. But um, the two that I, that come to mind first are sage, which is just common garden sage. So um, I make 
tea out of that. And, and when I make a tea, I usually just do a little bit of lemon with a little bit of honey. And I just literally, I don't know if you um, make tea out of fresh plant material, but you should if you don't, because you probably have a whole garden full of stuff you can make tea out of. But um, so that is one. So if you, if you, if it's the time of year when you have sage in your garden, just making a glass of tea would be great. Otherwise, you could always get dried sage, but I like to just make a tincture. So then if you feel the hot flash coming on, you could just take a t- couple drops under your tongue. And what sage does is sort of open up your pores and let the heat release in a way that does not cause you to sweat or, you know, gets rid of that hot flash. And that's sort of like a, Mm, that is like a historic remedy. So sage was often used by the older people that were older. And that's why, you know, anyone we think of a sage as somebody who's sort of wise Uh. and maybe an elder, the use of sage is tied up sort of into that, but it was definitely a hot flash remedy. So you could try that. And the other one is motherwort. So motherwort, again, it's a weed. It's just shown up in my yard. I have a couple patches of it. Um, and that's a member of the mint family, but it's very bitter. So if you try to make a tea out of that, you probably won't like it. And I, so how I usually do it is just tincture it and just recommend when somebody's having a hot flash to take just a couple drops of that under the tongue. And usually that will alleviate that. So motherwort is a plant that women often use, like it's used by young girls, it's used by mothers, and it's used as women move into menopause at all stages of womanhood actually is is how motherwort's used. Motherwort. Tell me more about that. Yeah, so motherwort, it's a weed. Everyone would call it a weed except for me. (laughs) I know you can buy seeds for it, but in my yard, it just happens to show up. And this happens in most houses that I move in. Like within a year or two, if you quit picking your weeds all the time or when you notice the weeds, if you look and see like what actually it is, then you'll have this big plant, you know, this big patch of motherwort all of a sudden come up after a couple of years. Um, So yeah, it's just a member of the mint family and mints always help you um, open up the pores. We use it to reduce fevers too, open up the pores and let out the heat. Young girls, adolescents use it maybe for painful periods or delayed periods. And then mothers use it sort of before and after childbirth. And then, you know, we use it pre-menopause and perimenopause both. I was just looking this plant up because I wanted to see what it looked like. And they said it was introduced in North America as a bee foraging plant. So it's good for bees. Um, But of course, being in the mint family, it can be invasive. It's considered an invasive. So how do you plant it so that it doesn't just go crazy in your garden? Yeah, I just have a patch of it and I let it grow and I pick it and it doesn't seem to, it hasn't gone out of control. So my plant has just gotten bigger and more beautiful and hasn't spread all over the way like peppermint or, you know, some of those plants do. It isn't a member of the mint family, but it's not doing that same thing. I mean, when I think about plants sort of getting out of control in my garden weeds, like I think of stinging nettle and creeping charlie or ground ivy, both of which I use and like to keep a healthy patch. But those are the ones that I sort of have to put up a boundary with and, you know, be good about pulling them when they oh. when they overstep their boundaries a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I always say that too. I have lots of mint in my garden, but it it doesn't bother me if it starts to go where I don't want it to go. It's so easy to pull. So I don't get too hung up about mint in my garden. I actually really like it. So it sounds like motherwort can be controlled in the same way. Yes. Yeah. And it doesn't have that. It mostly has a bushy, it grows up about as tall as 
I don't know, four feet or so. So, and it's not like a trailer. Like if you think of Creeping Charlie, how that mint goes, it's not like that. It doesn't have that same habit. It's more upright and it'll fall over. And then there's sort of new growth that kind of pops up, but it doesn't, yeah, it's not super invasive the way some mints are. Now, you mentioned Creeping Charlie. You went ahead and said that word. Uh, (laughs) Talked about that plant. Um, I have a picture that I took of Creeping Charlie, and it was just literally such a great picture of this plant doing what what it does best, which is creep. And I had to give it kudos because it was, I had just installed this path, and it was almost halfway across the path before I noticed it. It had been a couple weeks since I'd been in my garden, but that stuff is so darn vigorous, and I'm not very nice to it. It just annoys the heck out of me. I do stop every now and then and admire the little flowers, but for the most part, it drives me bananas, and I don't like the smell of Creeping Charlie when I'm pulling it. It just has that odor to it. So I'm really curious, what do you do with Creeping Charlie? <laughs> well, I don't, I mean, I don't use it a ton, but I do use it. And I actually have like a spot in my garden that I say, like, Creeping Charlie can grow here. This is your spot. And it's actually a decent sized spot. And, um, and it will get into my, the lawn and it'll drive my husband crazy. So he'll actually like pay the kids money to <laughs> sit down there and pull up the Creeping Charlie, which there's some satisfaction in how it pulls up in those big, long you know, uh, tendrils, they all, they all like that. But I, so when I use Creeping Charlie, I will use it for a stomach ache. So it's really good. Like if you're out and you have a stomach ache and there's nothing else around, it's a gas mover. And so if you, even if you have gas pains or you feel bloated, like it helps with that. And usually I just use the fresh plant. And also we use it like as herbalist and we call it ground ivy. It's a little bit nicer name. Yes. <laughs> but, we use it to remove like heavy metals. And so often what people think is it grows on land where there might have been like in dumps and things like that. It often grows there too. And so it might be doing the same thing for the land. So you always have to be careful where you pick it. So I only make sure I pick it in places that are clean because it does like to grow in really kind of dumpy, you know, not very clean places. But oh, um, so okay. I've used it a couple times like when... Um, oh, I've used it for my kids when they, and for myself, well, for stomach aches, I've used it. And it also is a fever. Um, it'll help with the fever because it's a member of the mint family. If you don't have anything else, I would probably, um, pick that. There is another thing. So when people have ringing of the ears, do you remember what that's called? It's like tinnuitis or yes, something like yes. that. Tinnitus. Yes. Uh-huh. Yep. Yes. That I have heard that people use ground ivy for that with good success. I and haven't tried that myself, but that is like one of the remedies that I've read about several times. I've just never run into anybody that's had that. Are we talking about maybe like eardrops with a tincture then? or and just I would just take it as a tincture and, um, but, and not put it in the ear. Yeah, I haven't heard, but it just even taking the tincture can have an effect on your ear. And I'm not okay. sure about what that is. I'm just waiting for somebody to come to me with that and then I'll <laughs> try the ground ivy and see if it works. But huh. that's sort of like an old kind of specific for that plant but it it, it is it's useful and I find too that when I sort of leave it to a patch then it kind of stays there in my yard and it doesn't go crazy everywhere else but some years of course it'll be the ground ivy year and it'll be everywhere and then the next year we hardly will have it anywhere it's super interesting how that plant um, 
kind of comes and goes, at least for, in our yard. Yeah. Well, and it, it does climb to the edges. So, you know, when I when I first start to garden in the spring, I'll see it deeper into the garden. So it'll be, you know, further in. And then as the hostas come up and the different plants come up and they start to provide shade, then that creeping Charlie creeps to the edges of my borders. And that's when I start to get annoyed because it does exactly what your <laughs> husband says is it cre- creeps into the lawn and it does all these yes. different things. And, and then you just want to go crazy, pull your hair out, pull the creeping Charlie out, just pull everything out. You get so upset. And I wonder what it is about that odor. I don't like the smell of it. So I'm, I'm curious about that. Um, it doesn't smell minty to me, but it's got kind of a, I don't know, an acid kind of smell that I just, I really Really don't like. And when I'm working with my student gardeners, I'll often say, take a whiff because that's how you know you're pulling the right thing. That is the smell. Oh. That's the smell of Creeping Charlie as you're pulling it. It's just, I don't know, it's a weird smell. So I'm going to have to look into that a little bit. Now I'm curious about that. Yeah. Um, one other one that I've seen mentioned in conjunction with this article where it was talking about your passion for herbal men- remedies, and you mentioned it earlier in the episode here, is elderberry. Yes, I love elderberry. It's one of my very favorite plants. Um, And it grows in the wild. um, But it also, um, if you can find sort of the variety that we have in Minnesota, which I did a bunch of research and I ended up finding a company in Michigan that had that same variety. And so I planted that in my yard and I planted a couple others and a couple others did not work. But the sort of the, the more kind of native variety just took off. Um, and I've only probably had it for two or three, well, three or four years now, but they flower and they fruit and they're beautiful. So you can grow them in your yard. You can wildcraft them too. But how I use elderberry is, so in June, it'll flower and the flowers smell awesome to me. I love them. And to make a, a tea out of the fresh flowers is such a treat. Um, I also tincture the elderberry and the elderberry flowers, and I'll use that for cold and flus. That's just one of my remedies that I have on hand. But what what I think is sort of the prize of the elderberry bush is the berries. And they come in um, about the end of August. And usually I harvest them and I make a tincture out of them. And then I also make a syrup. And I always run out of both. And so <laughs> I always need more. And sometimes I'll buy commercial syrups. And it's called Sambuca um or Sambucus, when you um, look at the grocery store, like at Whole Foods or or one of the co-ops, they'll carry an elderberry syrup. But when I do it, um, I'll use the fresh berry and I boil it down. Um, I strain it out. I add honey. I add some brandy to it. And um, I add some, it's the, oh gosh, I add some cherry concentrate to it just to kind of help the flavor sweeten it up a little bit and that's usually what we use in my family in the fall until it runs out and then I'll have to go to switch to the commercial preparations of the elderberry syrup and how we use elderberry is literally at the first sign when I was talking about people having like um, kind of a tickle in the back of their throat or sometimes like with my 10 year old he might look a little pale or he might just be crabby or I can tell he is tired and it's a little unusual because it's like 630 at night and he is not normally tired so I usually will dose them with the elderberry it's, it's safe it's safe for kids it's safe for adults um, 
and, you know, try to get him into the bath and get him to bed early that night and see if I can head off any cold and flu that is coming. And then for all the, the other members of my house, household that are older, you know, we often, like, I don't travel without elderberry syrup, and my husband will take it elderberry syrup with him on all of his business trips. I have a son in college in California. He's got a supply of elderberry syrup. It's one of our um, sort of go-to remedies that we use often to um, prevent colds and flus, and it works great. And it, and some people really like the taste of it, and some people really don't. <laughs> but I think it tastes pretty good. And is, it, is it tart? Yeah, it's a little tart. And, you know, I mean, there's elderberry um, wine, there's elderberry jam. People will bake it into some baked goods. It has a seed in it that needs to be strained out. I don't use it to bake with, but there's people that will strain it out and then bake with it, but it's a little bit too complicated for me. But I, so I just, yeah, I think it's a great, um, just a wonderful plant to have on hand and really useful. And it's one of those ones that when you use it and you see the results, that is sort of one of those plants that can get you hooked on herbalism just because it works so well and it's easy and safe. It has a good track record. There's a lot of research on it. Um, so I think it's sort of a nice way, like for people that are just starting out to use plants, this is sort of a friendly a friendly plant to begin with, I guess. It's, <laughs> I would say. it's one of the gateway herbs. Yes. Yep. If you do any research on it, you'll read that. Like they used it in Europe. There was a time there was a ruler in Europe that said everyone needed to grow elderberry and they use it for all sorts of things. They use the bark and the root, but usually I just typically use the berry and the, and the flower and um, just find them so helpful Hmm. and just, yeah, just really useful. Well, I, I don't want to put you on the spot here, but maybe you could just off the top of your head give listeners a maybe, I don't know, top list of plants that you would recommend, herbs that you would recommend folks try their hand at. Most herbs are very easy to grow, but maybe the essentials, some things that you would recommend that they start growing and then reading about and experimenting with. What would make your list? Yeah, well, I, um, so elderberry would be one. Um, I think that's a great plant. I really love yarrow, and we talked about that one a little bit. And yarrow, just because everyone gets bruises, everybody gets cuts, it's really easy to use, and it has really fast results. So I think that's another plant that's really um, a nice place to begin with. Um, Calendula is another plant we talked a little bit about. so it's a skin healer. I do use it for bruises. I also use it, um, it's a lymphatic. So if anybody has swollen glands, I often use calendula. And then I dry whatever flowers I don't use, make for medicine. And then I throw the leaves in my cooking all winter long as a lymphatic and as an immune booster. So that's another one. So calendula is just a great plant. It's easy to grow. It's in the marigold family. Well, it's related. We call it pot marigold. It looks similar. Okay. I actually don't think it's in the same family, but it grows, it's similar. If you can grow marigold, you can grow calendula, although they don't bush out quite as nicely. And when you grow calendula, notice like the part of the medicine is that the leaves are really sticky and that's just sort of an indication um, or a signature, we call it, of a lymphatic. Um, But anyway, so calendula is another one, yeah, that I really like, that I think it's a beginner, a beginner plant. And chamomile is another one that I talked about. So I talked about it for stomach aches. People are often familiar with using chamomile for um, when, you know, going to bed, a cup of chamomile tea. Um, So we use it that way. I usually use a tincture because I don't have enough plants 
to our flowers to last for tea. Okay. Um, so it's good for any stomach aches. So anytime you have um, an upset stomach, you're nervous, you have butterflies in your stomach, you have a presentation or something going on, um, chamomile is just the perfect little herb just to take a couple drops under your tongue. Um, and chamomile is another one too. I always have it in my bag. Actually, all my boys, I, I was writing a blog for my website and I, I texted my boys and said, do you guys have chamomile in your backpack? Like, because I'm going to write that you do. So do you, <laughs> or, you know, can I write that? And they all said, yes. So that is sort of one that everybody, it's the only one that everybody carries around with them because if they ever have a stomach ache or they feel nervous or um, they get rattled about something, you can take it and it just kind of calms you down and makes you feel better. And another thing, it is anti-inflammatory. So I've used it for on bug bites and bee stings, but I don't have anything else. Like I've been on the beach and stung by a bee and there's no plants anywhere. And I have chamomile in my purse and it's anti-inflammatory and I just keep putting the tincture on the bite and it will just go down and down and down and, um, you know, be gone again within an hour. Hmm. And, and chamomile too, I... Um, it has, I've used it for hives where someone's broken out in hives and it's the only thing I have and it's anti-inflammatory. And so I'll give the chamomile and, you know, like within a half hour, the hives are going back down and we can see them, you know, everything totally reversing, which even I'm like, yes, awesome. You know, I wasn't quite sure what to expect at that point, but it, it works great. And so, yeah, so chamomile is another one. It's easy to grow. It's available. I think that one's great. And I also think if, if, um, I like lemon balm just because, again, it's another easy-to-grow plant. It's a nervine. Um, it, you can have a glass before you go to bed, and it, it relaxes you, um, but doesn't. it's not a sedative, so it doesn't put you to sleep. And I think it's just a plant that if you have it in your garden and somebody comes over and you want to, you know, make something a little bit special, just a glass of lemon balm tea is delicious. Well, and I just think pulling some of the weeds into use, like, so, you know, thinking about letting a patch of plantain grow in your yard and just maybe one spot or starting to use the dandelion or even, um, you know, stinging nettle is a plant that we haven't talked about. And I use stinging nettle all the time. I have a history of being anemic and so when it comes up in the spring, like I'll be so excited to get that. So I'll clip the tops off. I'll, I'll make a tea out of it. I actually eat it. I fry, I, I'll boil it up and put some olive oil and butter on it or butter and um, lemon on it and eat it. And I get such a charge from that. It makes me feel really good. Like I can just feel it right away. It's all it's full of nutrients. I've heard um, my herbal teacher, Lisa Wolf, she used to call it the um, super blue green algae of the Midwest because it's so packed with vitamins and minerals. Um, so I do think like maybe just pulling some of those kind of weeds in that grow in our garden, but maybe using them for food. Um, chickweed is another one that I love that just kind of grows around my plants and my garden and I let it grow. And it's one of the, it's delicious and it's a really good salad herb. And my 10 year old will sit out in the garden and just eat the chickweed. <laughs> so, oh my gosh. And he has like the little, I can just picture him with the, the chickweed dangling out of his mouth while he's doing, I don't know what he's doing back there. He's supposed to be picking weeds or something and said he's eating the chickweed and, you know, throwing rocks or something. I love <laughs> so, it. Well, you're, yeah, but, I, it sounds like your kids have learned so much from you about this. They could probably teach others. Yes. Well, my 10 year old probably is, he knows the most because I think by the time, 
So he's 10 and I started this about 15 years ago and I was much more confident with talking to him. Like he'll they'll be walking along. If there's red clover, he'll pull off a head and pop it in his mouth and eat it. And, you know, he scares adults because they don't know what he just ate. And he knows <laughs> and <laughs> and he's pretty clear on it. But he sort of has always grown up with this and it's normal to him. And I've even heard him or watched him treat because, again, I have stinging nettle in my yard. I've watched him treat his friend with jewel weed, which also grows in our yard, um, for the stinging nettle sting that his friend is on the ground crying and freaking out about. He'll be like, you just get this plant and you rip it off and you mush it on your leg and that would be fine. And so I I started to laugh when he does that. And I, yeah, so he actually knows, um, but he's not super excited. He's just like, it's so, he's so matter of fact about it, you know, like, yeah, duh, this is how you do it, is usually how he acts. <laughs> Very interesting. Now, what do your parents think? Because you mentioned that they are both gardeners, that you grew up with a garden, and now they, they've seen you kind of evolve into this herbalist. So what are their thoughts on this? Yes, well, they they don't they don't eat their weeds like I do, <laughs> and they don't. Uh, my dad still has his vegetable garden, and he grows all this stuff. My mom still has a beautiful flower garden. They haven't embraced herbalism the way I have, and they spray their yard with still with stuff that I don't like. So I don't use their plants either, um, you know, for to make my medicine. And I of course love their garden and appreciate it, but I think they think I'm a little crazy when I talk about eating my weeds and, you know, doing all that stuff, but my kids do it and they're fine with it, you know, and my mom and my dad both have given tinctures and made teas for and made stuff, but that's sort of not their route. They just like the traditional garden, you know, my dad has these certain vegetables he's been growing for all these years and he's just going to keep growing those vegetables and that feels good to him and feels good to me too. So, yeah. So they don't, yeah, they're not... They see it, they've sort of experienced it, but they kind of like their traditional way of doing, of, of being gardeners, I guess, hmm. is what, is, yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, they're glad to come over and eat some um, wild weed pesto or, you know, they'll try all that stuff, but I just don't, <laughs> they won't do it themselves, I guess. It doesn't light them up the way it lights you up. Right, exactly. Yes. And I I think part of that has to do with being a mother and just looking for, you know, if I don't want to give my kids something or they're hurt and I feel powerless, what can I do? And so even by just being able to go get that yarrow and put that on my son's head, I feel like, oh, I'm helping them. And, you know, this is doing something. And so I think maybe that has something to do with it. I'm not sure. Yeah. So when you think about uh, people who are super inspired by what they've heard today, that they are just so motivated, they want to go and start down the same path you started down 15 years ago, what would you tell them to do? Where should they start in their area to begin to learn some of this information? Well, I, um, so I'm just getting my website out with just that sort of idea. So I'll sort of have my story. I have a list of books that I recommend and my business name is Home, Body and Spirit. So it sort of encompasses all and there's a lot of plants in there. Um, because for me, plant has, plants have really sort of changed my life and changed the way I think about my health and, and the way I raise my kids has been all inspired by plants. And so that will be on there. But I also just recommend, you know, um, you know, doing a Google search in your area and finding somebody that can do a medicinal medicinal plant walk um, and signing up for that or signing up for just, you know, 
a three-hour herb class and see what happens and just start where you're at. So what what happens when you start to look up herbalism or you look up a plant? There's like a hundred different remedies or there's all this stuff that you can do and just think, you know, well, here is calendula and what is one thing that that I might be able to use this plant? What's one way that I can start using this plant and and then work that into your life and then think about adding other plants and adding other ways to use it. So it's not like, it doesn't have to be so overwhelming that it just scares you and sort of backs you off and makes you feel confused. It can just be something that you, you know, pull into your life and use it as, you know, as it fits in and and as it comes up. But I do think just finding the plants, it's really nice to do the the learning that you do online or in books. But the learning that you do from, you know, walking with somebody that knows herbalism is, you know, invaluable. And then the time that you spend yourself with the plant, you know, figuring out how to use it, you know, trying it on things and seeing what does work and what doesn't work. Like that's really where you get the experience and the confidence to be able to treat yourself and to treat others. Um, and so it's really a mix of all of those sort of all of that kind of learning. So a little trial and error and a little just every year adding something new to your repertoire. Yep, exactly. Yes. I like that. Well, in terms of herbal teachers, you and I spoke, we had a little pre-interview chat, and you mentioned that you have an herbal teacher that's coming from France. What's that all about? Yeah, so there's one of my teachers, her name is Yulia Graves. It's spelled like Julia, but you pronounce it Yulia. Um, and she is going to be here in May, and I'll have that on my website. We're just nailing down the days and the times. One of the books that she's written is called The Language of Plants, and that talks about the doctrine of signatures, which is sort of a whole other area that we didn't really touch on, but it's that by looking at a plant and even seeing the how what the leaf pattern is and what the color of the flower is, that we can sort of start to discern what the uses might be. And so she's got a whole book on that. And she's been one of my herbal teachers probably for the last 10 years. Um, and she'll come in and, you know, there'll be just a couple, like there'll be a two-hour class. And so it's just, you know, one night and then we're going to have a weekend class. And so it's just a way to... Um, yeah, to just start this journey and to figure out what the plants can do and just to be introduced to them. Oh, very fascinating. And do you find that the that European practitioners have different insights or maybe more ancient insights than what happens over here in North America? Well, so it's interesting. So in Minnesota, our famous herbalist is named Matthew Wood. So he used to live in Minnetrista. He had a farm out there. He taught here for many years. And now he, I think in the summers he spends in Wisconsin and then he goes um, to California for the winter, but he'll come back and teach classes in Minnesota. So his, he's written lots of books. Um, the Book of Herbal Wisdom is, is one of the first books that I got and I love it. I still use it all the time. It has a ton of earmarks and, and so, so what he'll, he says, he, he sort of practices the European herbalism, but with the indigenous, some indigenous teacher, teachings brought in. So what he tried, and Yulia and Matthew actually worked together, you know, and studied together and have collaborated, collaborated on a couple things. So 
to answer your question, like there is, there's all different branches of herbalism. And so what will happen is in the United States, we traditionally do practice the European herbalism because that's sort of what was brought over. But then like with Matthew, if there's some of that indigenous teaching infused in, which is nice because that's where we get the uses of the native plants. Like bone set is one that is not a traditional um, plant used in Europe, but it is you, the indigenous people did use it. And so Matthew, what is like, you know, the way I learned about that plant in particular. Okay. Okay. Does that make sense? Yep. Makes great sense. I love that. Now, what about, you mentioned that you're going to have books that, that you will reference on your website that you think are good resources. How about favorite websites to follow? Are there other great go-to websites or even social media accounts that you think are really invaluable? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I'm a book person and I'm sort of like an old herbalist book person. Like I like the herbalists that were around when I um, started investigating this, which are like um, Rosemary Gladstar is one, David Hoffman is one, Matthew Wood is another. Um, I sort of like those sort of older herbalists. And the interesting thing is they don't have a huge presence online or, you know, even Yulia Graves. Like they'll have some, but they don't that's not where they put out their information. It's usually in books. So it's interesting that you say that. There are not a lot of websites that I follow on social media that are herbalist related. I mean, I'm, I kind of like the books. Yeah, if somebody was interested, like looking up, you know, Matthew Wood, Rosemary Gladstar, um, David Hoffman, I think people like the herbals like that, those are, um, those are the strong ones that I recommend. And I think it's, too, depending on where you are in the country um, or the world, there'll be some sort of herbal roots in your area. And, and I would just look into those and follow those and figure out, you know, where that information is in your community. Okay. All right. Well, Jody, I tell you what, this has just been tremendous. I think people will find it very inspiring. And I think you've set a ton of folks down this path of learning more about herbs and the plants, native plants especially, that can be used for healing and not just for beauty or for cooking. So I think this is fantastic. You mentioned uh, you've got this website coming up. Do you want to give us the the link? And then, of course, I'll have it in the show notes for this episode. But how will people find you? Your website's coming out shortly. Yes. So it it's it's long, and I <laughs> it's a long website, but it's inspiredlivinghomebodyspirit.com. And so, and like I said a little bit earlier, I would like to talk about just the home and the body and the spirit and sort of talk about all those different aspects and plants have really inspired me in many different ways and actually changed many different parts of my life and so yeah the plants are are a big part of that but so it's www.homebodyspirit.com okay and my uh, my phone number will be on there you can send me an email if you have any questions but this idea of everybody could have a homegrown apothecary is something that um, I had maybe a two years ago. I was thinking, I just want to tell everybody they can grow their own medicine and they can make a difference, you know, in their in their lives and the lives of the people that they um, that are in their family by just you know using some of these simple remedies that can be grown in your garden. And so this is sort of the perfect audience, all these gardeners, um, to to start to do that. And so I'm really excited to be able to present here and talk about this. Thank you. (laughs) Well, I love it. And you know, people, if they also want to follow you on social media, you're on Facebook and Instagram, right? 
Yes. And both, again, it's Inspired Living, Home, Body, Spirit on both. And if you can click the link in the show notes, that will take you to my website, which then you can also find the links there to Instagram and Facebook. Okay, perfect. And then local folks can go to your website and you'll have upcoming events there as well. I know by the time this show airs, you'll already have done a a flurry of events here locally. But if they want to see things that are upcoming and kind of stay on top of that, go to your blog and you'll have upcoming events there as well. Yes. Yep. Perfect. That sounds great. (laughs) Wonderful. Well, Jody, again, thank you so much for all of your time today. This was absolutely fantastic. Oh, gosh, thank you. I appreciate it so much. It's so wonderful. Well, that's it for the show today. I want to thank Jody McKee of Inspired Living Home Body Spirit for sharing all of these fantastic herbal remedies with us. And Jody's got a free PDF download that's titled Five Plants to Grow in Your Garden This Year and then Five Weeds to Let Grow in Your Garden This Year for Health and Well-Being. And that PDF is available on her website. So just head on over to inspiredlivinghomebodyspirit.com backslash sign up and you can sign up to receive that. Otherwise, just when you're over there, click on the more tab and you'll see sign up right under that and then you can receive that free PDF download as well as Jody's monthly newsletter and both are very well done. I want to thank the women that make up my listener advisory board. These ladies have volunteered to help me through May for the very first quarter of the listener advisory board. And starting in June, I'll be looking for four to six volunteers to help with next quarter's listener advisory board. In the meantime, I can't thank these ladies enough. They've been especially helpful to me considering the fact that I had rotator cuff surgery on the 20th of March and I'm still recovering. And their support and suggestions have been just tremendous. I can't thank them enough. So I want to recognize them now. Beth Engel, Denise Pugh, Denise Gardens in North Mississippi, and is a contributing writer to Mississippi Gardener Magazine. Amy Fairbanks von Atchen, Patricia Chandler Newport. She's the owner of Backyard Urban Gardens in Kego Harbor, Michigan. Deb Gibson. And of course, Peggy Ann Montgomery. She's the brand manager at American Beauty's Native Plants, and she was a guest on the show. I want to thank my team at Podfly Productions. Without these guys, my show would not get produced every week. They do a fantastic job for me. My editor is David Myers. My copywriter is Ein Kadena. And my project manager is David Gregerson. I can't thank these guys enough. And just a reminder, I'll have all of the generous information that Jody shared on the show today over at my website at sixfootmama.com. That's the number six, F-T-M-A-M-A.com. And it's also the home of the Still Growing Podcast. So when you get there in the menu, you'll see podcast. Just click on that and today's episode will pop right up. You'll see the links to everything that Jody talked about, as well as the links to the Garden News Roundup. So all of those curated articles will be listed there. And then while you're at Six Foot Mama, head on over to the Facebook group. Just look in that same menu and at the very top, you'll see Facebook group. Just click on it. It will take you right into Facebook, right into the group, and then just click join. I'd love to meet you in the group. Well, I hope your seed starting efforts are well underway. 
that you've picked some new varieties to try this year, or you may still be pouring through some of your catalogs. It's all good. Lots of fun this time of year. Have a great week, everyone. Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling is a SixFootMama.com production made in lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota. Still Growing is a weekly gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow.